And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You should say this, the Lord has needed it. Those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of me. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their, clo- their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on him. So let's pray. God, this morning, make no mistake about it, we are here to meet with you. We want to see you afresh. We want to experience the move of your Holy Spirit in our midst, in our hearts, in our lives. We are weak and we are feeble. And our faith, even at times, Waffles and shakes and flounders. We need your grace. We need you to come and help. We know it's a it's in some sense a short a short road to glory that this life is just a vapor, but we also know in another sense it feels long. <laughs> it feels hard. It feels like sometimes we're barely holding on. We thank you that in the midst of it all, you're holding on to us. And we pray today you'd tighten your grip. We pray today, God, that you you would um, encourage your people. Those that are struggling would find fresh strength. We pray that you'd bring conviction into this place. We know, God, that there are some probably playing around with sin. Hiding it. Doing their deeds in the dark. God, we ask that you'd shine light in this place. Not to expose them. Not to hurt them. But to bring healing. And we just invite you. You say that your word, it is like a two-edged sword. That it cuts and it divides and it exposes us to you. Well, God, we open ourselves up to you. And we ask you, come and do your work. You're the great physician. You're a great savior. And we need you here. In Jesus' name, amen. Um. I suppose back in Spurgeon's day, from what I'm told, in fact, I think one of the whole chapters in one of his books is about how you project without amplification. And they didn't have that. And he would, oh, you can hear me there. That's at least better. I guess I won't have to be Spurgeon today then. (laughs) I was getting ready to. Um, Let me open this way. And I promise eventually you'll see where I'm going. Maybe. One of the books that I've had the, um, we have two elder candidates right now kind of going through the process. Some of you may know John uh, Lugo, Tolu Odalesi, awesome guys. Um, One of the things I've had them do, we're reading through um, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church by Mark Dever. Uh, It's an awesome book. Uh, If you have a way to get it, I would say grab a hold of a copy. Uh, Usually I I give them away for free, but I didn't have one today and I wasn't going to give you my copy. Um... But Nine Marks of a Healthy Church is an awesome book. And uh, if you want to know kind of some of the things I'm aiming for, aiming at as the pastor of this church, uh, you could look in there because a lot of it's laid out, what I hope to see happen even in this place. But uh, as I opened up my copy um, of that book and began to kind of peruse it, because it's been a while since I read it, uh, something struck me that I had not noticed before. Something uh, was a little bit troubling, actually, as I opened the first pages of this book, and uh, something caught my eye. Um, I don't know 
how many of you have heard of a guy by the name of Joshua Harris? Um, so he is a, or has been or was a prominent pastor leader in uh, the evangelical streams that I run in. And uh, he wrote the foreword to my copy of Nine Marks. Uh, I guess it was published 2004, second edition. And there it was. I would not have thought anything about this foreword before. In fact, I didn't. I probably didn't even read it. But this time, as I came to the copy and I saw his name there, it struck me. There was a sort of, uh, there was an ominous sort of feeling that came over me. And I'll tell you why. Those of you that, that know his story probably know where I'm going. But those of you that don't, let me fill you in. It, it must have been probably just a couple of uh, months ago. Ago, a few months ago, that he uh, decided, he made this public announcement on Instagram that he is no longer a Christian. That he uh, essentially uh, is having kind of one of those, what you might call a deconversion, where a guy who, and again, we're talking about a guy who's so prominent in the evangelical world that Mark Dever says, Will you write a foreword for my book? Right? He no longer, though he uh, at one point pastored and, 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 and wrote books of his own, no longer wanted to be called a Christian, no longer wanted to be a part of this faith. Now the reason why um, he never came out and explicitly stated, uh, we're not totally sure, but I think there's enough clues that make at least a few of the pieces come together. Uh, for one thing, his announcement about his uh, you know, um, deconversion or, or move away from Christianity came at, at virtually the same time that he announces he's also splitting from his wife and their marriage, uh, that they're breaking up this marriage, we're done with one another, oh and by the way, I'm also done with Jesus. But then also in his Instagram post where he announced uh, this thing about his faith, or lack thereof, um, he at the same time apologized. He apologized to, in particular, the LGBTQ plus community for all that he had taught, all that he's believed, all the things that he's... Really, the, the, the historically... Biblically orthodox positions he's held through the years, he was saying, I'm so sorry for that. Will you forgive me? And so it seems that you've got, some, in, in one way or another, uh, part of the factor, at least in terms of his deconversion, in terms of his renunciation of Christianity, resulting from the, the Bible's perspective on sexuality, marriage, and things like this. He could no longer stand for it, could no longer uphold that. In fact, his next post to Instagram, I can't move. His next post to Instagram was, uh, was, was him at a, uh, you know, marching at a gay pride parade there in Vancouver, Canada, where he now resides. Now, I don't think it's too difficult to see what's going on here. Um, if we can be honest, right? I mean, sometimes what the Bible says is hard. It's hard. Sometimes we come to text in Scripture or there are teachings uh, that we see coming from the mouth of Jesus or others and we go, gosh, that doesn't immediately strike me as good. It doesn't feel nice. I don't like that. How does that, you know, relate to a God I'm told is love. and I, I don't see it. I don't, I'm not sure I believe it. Sometimes we resent God for saying things like, hey, you need to stick with your spouse in marriage. Keep this covenant. You go, but she's ruining my life. But, but, but he's a jerk. But I feel unfulfilled. I feel unsatisfied. Really, God, you want me to stay in something like this? I can't imagine that. This isn't love. This isn't good. He said, no. Press in and you'll see. In time. Maybe not even on this side of glory. <laughs> Sometimes we may resent God for what he says about homosexuality and things. 
I mean, maybe. I, mean, I don't know. I mean, in the case of my ministry, I've talked to two or three that this was a, a personal issue for them. Temptations. And so I, maybe it is even for some of you. And if it's not for you, then perhaps it's for friends or people that you know and love. Definitely. Where you hear about, you know, Christianity's, at least historical positions on these matters, and, and you say, what? That doesn't feel... Doesn't Jesus just accept me the way that I am? Doesn't He just love me right where I'm... Well, yes. Well, you're telling me that He wants to change this fundamental part about me, that, that this is wrong, and if, if, if not, then I just gotta be alone. This sounds cruel. This, this doesn't sound right. This doesn't sound like a God of love. Now, as a pastor, committed to expositional preaching, to what I mean by that, essentially, largely, verse by verse, teaching of God's Word, meaning I can't wriggle out and choose my favorite themes. <laughs> But I'm just going to give you the full counsel of God as best as I can. As a pastor committed to that kind of preaching, I will just be straight with you. I come to text and I go, oh no. I don't want to preach on that. I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to go there. I don't like that. God, sometimes I feel like I'm, like I'm like your PR kind of guy and I've got to make you look good when in reality this doesn't sound good. If I'm real, I felt that way last time I was up here, a couple weeks ago. The text, right before the one we're in today. This parable about the minas where Jesus is this king and, you know, who's going to receive his kingdom and then he's coming back and he's going to check in on his servants to see what they did with the resources he gave them to steward while he was gone. And it all sounds all right and, and we're good and, and, and it feels kind of, okay, yeah, he's going to reward, he's going to do this or that. And then you come to the last verse. Of the whole thing. And, and you read this, Luke 19, 27. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. And you go, Jesus, I don't want to go there. The last parable ended with, the Son of Man has come to seek and save. The, the, the last text I looked at was Zacchaeus ended with the Son of Man's come to seek and save the lost. I like that ending. That's a good climax. Not bring them here and let me slaughter them. What? Talk about a mood killer. Talk about, ah, oh, what am I going to do with that? That sounds hard. It doesn't sound good. Jesus died, rose, He's going to get a kingdom, He's going to reward us. Great! Oh yeah, and He's also going to slaughter in His presence all those who reject Him. Please stand for your benediction. Go, go in God's blessing. We'll see you next week. It's like, oh, that sounds hard. So, But at least here in the West, this doctrine of hell and God's judgment, it's a, it's a tough pill for us to swallow. We don't like it. So, some places, they're longing for the day of judgment. They get it. Us here, for some reason, any sort of you know, outside authority, we're kind of the individualistic, and we, we don't like this idea of being judged. We don't like this idea. But, but I, I've tried in the past to talk about how I see how hell and judgment are a part of the good news. I get it. And, and I could see how on that day, I know we will say, this is right and good. And we will even praise Him for it like we see in the book of Revelation. They are praising Him not just for His grace, but for His just judgments. Making all the wrongs right. That's true. I get it. But nonetheless, I come to some of those texts and I go, oh, that's hard. That's hard. And I know you probably have your own list. I know you probably have your own stuff. It's like, gosh, I kind of wish that wasn't in the Bible. I, I don't know what to do with it. And here's what I want to press in on you. Think about it. What do you do with it? Do you just kind of gloss over that? Kind of read over it? Well, all right, let's just kind of move on. Do you reinterpret it? Give a new spin to it? Now, there's some, there's some validation to uh, getting into the text and really making sure we have the right interpretation of things and not arguing against that. But do we try to twist and spin it to fit what feels better to us? Or do you just walk away from the faith? Or are you just one step, you know, away from just, I'm out the door. 
I don't want to hear another thing about, you know, what God's calling me to do, sexuality or money or, or whatever it may be. I don't want, I don't want to go there. Now, with all of this, you may again be wondering, what in the world does this have to do with, with, with the text? What in the world does a donkey, <laughs> Jesus going to get a donkey to ride in Jerusalem, have to do with all that I've just opened up with here? Well, I hope to make sense of that as we go. Because um, I actually think that our text is intended to speak into stuff like Joshua Harris, deconversion, Biblical sexuality, hell. The sort of hard doctrines that we struggle with. I think this text is actually intended to kind of speak into the confusion we often feel. The tension we often feel between what God says and does and and what we expected or thought would be good or right that He would otherwise do. We kind of get lost in between those two. Here's what he's actually doing. Here's what I think he should be doing. What do I do with that? I think this text is trying to help us out. I I think that's really essentially what Jesus is doing with his disciples here. And I'll uh, show you that if you give me some time to develop it. So now, let's give our attention to the text before us. Uh, I'm going to organize my thoughts under three headings in particular. First, signals of sovereignty. Second, shadows of Calvary. And then third, stones of memory. If that sounds too poetic for you, remember, I was an English major. Sorry about that. Uh, I anticipate moving quickly through the first two and we'll kind of come to rest for a little while on that third because that's where a lot of what I've opened up with is going to kind of come together for us, at least I hope. So first, signals of sovereignty. Signals of sovereignty. Um, Before I really get to that point, let me at least say this. Um, Our text, on my read... It's so funny, because this is why I love expositional preaching. I had no idea I'd be talking about this. I kind of thought I would just kind of move right along. But as I, as I pressed in, I was amazed at what I saw. At first read, the text looks a little bit unusual. It, it, it doesn't look all that important. There's kind of a redundancy to it. Um, it seems perhaps a little bit irrelevant or unnecessary to the narrative. The gist of it is this. Jesus and, and his disciples are getting ever closer to Jerusalem. They're now a few miles out, maybe two, three miles out uh, to the east. Uh, they're on the Mount of Olives coming in towards uh, the city, towards Jerusalem. And uh, as they're coming in, Jesus says, okay, I, I, I don't just want to walk in. I, wanna, I want something to, I wanna, I want something to kind of roll into town on, you know. And so he says, I want you guys, two of his disciples, go on ahead to the village up there. I want you to grab me uh, a, a colt. It's going to be tied up. It's never going to have been ridden on. Somebody's going to come and say, why do you want that? You need to tell them that the the Lord has need of it. And then, here we go, you read, and it goes, okay. And they specifically kind of put it, they found it just as he said. They went, they got the colt, there it was, tied up. They untied it, it had never been written on before. The master said, why are you here? They said, what are you doing? He said, the the Lord has need of it. And then they took it back. He said it, it happened. Okay, great. Now let's move on, right, to the, the, the triumphal entry and all this stuff. Let's get to the, the real stuff. And it's like, well, hold on. At first it seems perhaps redundant. At first it seems a bit superfluous. But then you press into it. And I think you get something a little bit more going on here. I think you start to see maybe what Jesus is doing with his disciples in these moments and why it's important. I think in particular, first thing, you see these signals of his sovereignty. He's wanting to kind of flash for them. Just, hey, I want you to see my sovereignty for a moment. I want to give you a little little microcosmic example of just how in control your king, your Christ is. So what's interesting to me is, yes, the narrative is redundant, but therein lies the point. The point of this text is, he said it would be, and it was. That's why the, the emphasis there is in verse 32. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. Jesus knew. 
And he's kind of flexing a bit of his omnipotence, his omniscience, his sovereignty here for his disciples to catch a view of. It's not vain repetition. This is profoundly significant. Now, some commentators have looked at this and uh, it's kind of funny. Uh, um, and, and just kind of said, hey, you know what? Okay, clearly Jesus prearranged this. I mean, that's, that's what we have here is a prearranged plan. And I mean, it, okay, it's plausible. Prearranged plan. And then perhaps this, the Lord has need of it word was his password. That they, you know, kind of like the, the eagle has landed or whatever, you know, like the Lord has need of it. Oh, okay. You know, whatever. I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, ah, I'm not so sure. I, I think that misses the point of what Jesus is after. I think we're supposed to see our Savior's sovereignty. In particular, I think he wants his disciples to see how in control he is, even as he's about to move towards what would seem like this out-of-control event called the crucifixion. We are days away. We are moving into the last week of his life. And he's going, I need you to see I am in control. I agree with commentator James Edwards on this when he writes, particularly in the third gospel, Jesus' prescience or his his foreknowledge um, and foretelling kind of ability increases in proportion to his proximity to the cross. Julius Wellhausen notes, we must not rationalize here. Jesus has not already ordered the cult, nor made an arrangement with its owners, but he knows beforehand what will happen, because God, who directs what is to happen, is with him. Jesus is not unaware of the storm clouds gathering before him, nor is he an unwilling victim of them. Rather, he possesses foreknowledge and sovereignty over all that must transpire in Jerusalem and and uh, Edwards there puts must in quotations because that's the word that Jesus has been using all along and I focused on it from time to time. He says, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer. I will enter into my glory, but first I must go and suffer. The Son of Man must be rejected and die and rise. There's there's a mustness to all of this. And there's a foreknowledge. There's a sovereignty involved in it. He is in control. It's a part of the plan. And if we doubt that this is how we ought to take our text here this morning, all we need to do, I think, is make note of other places where the same sort of signaling occurs. So Luke 22, 7 through 13 uh, is when you got the Passover. And it's almost like a, a repeat scene on this. It's almost almost the same sort of thing going on. He tells his disciples, enter the city. Two of them, actually. I, think it's, I can't remember, Peter or John. He, um, enter the city and you're going to find some dude with a jar of water. And that dude walking by with a jar of water is going to lead you to a house. You go into that house, you find the master, and then you tell him, we need your guest room, and then set it up. And it it emphasizes again for us, verse 13 of Luke 22, and they went and found it just as he had told them. Again, I think, signal of sovereignty here. Wow, what's that all about? But if we need more examples from the last week of his life, we come to Luke 22, 21 and 22. It's there in that guest room around the table of that last Passover meal that Jesus foretells Judas's betrayal, like Paul prayed for here, prayed about it here at the beginning. Behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. You are not pulling a fast one on me, Judas. Just so you know, for the record, they see you getting behind my back and, 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 tr- and tricking me into a trap. Just so you know. And soon after that, in Luke 22, verse 34, he speaks of Peter's denial. I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. I will never deny you. Yes, you will. I know. Signals of his sovereignty. He's in control. This is not something that, as chaotic as it may seem, as they move towards Calvary, it, 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 
The Son of God knows what He is doing. He knows what's about to happen. He is signaling to His disciples of His sovereignty. He wants them to know that the cross is no accident, but a part of the divine plan. It's not as if, disciples, the Jewish leaders have outsmarted me. It's not as if the Roman authorities have overpowered me. No, no, no. Like he says to his disciples in John ten eighteen, no one, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And he goes on to say, and I'll pick it back up again when the time is right. So just go, wow. He does the same sort of thing in John's gospel. You remember that scene where, where all the, the guards are coming and the people are coming to, to grab hold of him and they go, it's Jesus of Nazareth. And he basically, are you him or whatever? And he goes, I am. And they all just fall. It's as if to say, let me just kind of, let me just remind you that you're not taking my life. I am giving it to you. A word from my mouth and you fall. What was that? It's this. Signals of his sovereignty all along the way. And it's in our text this morning, I think. He's wanting his people to see. He's wanting his disciples to know the cross is no mishap. It's why he's come. And this is why, by the way, in our text, even as Jesus' signaling of his sovereignty is also at the same time foreshadowing the things of Calvary. This moves to heading two. Shadows of Calvary. Even as he's showing he's in control of all things, he's kind of hinting at the fact that part of what he's in control of, part of what he's sovereign over, is what's about to happen at Calvary. I'll give you a couple of these shadows. Shadow number one, a a cult, a cult. In the first place, we need to consider what sort of animal it is that Jesus tells his disciples to get. And consider why. We're told it's a cult there in verse 30. The Greek is a little bit ambiguous. It could be the young animal of actually um, numerous different kinds of animals. We know from Matthew and John's account, we're talking about uh, the young of a, of a donkey, a young donkey. Okay? And that's going to be significant. You'll recall perhaps from last time and numerous points throughout this gospel, we've kind of mentioned that um, there in Israel, right, and through the years, through the centuries, really, there's been this sort of angst, this anticipation about this coming one who's going to sit on the throne of David and he's going to make all the wrong right and he's going to take all the shame we've experienced through the last years with, you know, different Gentile nation over, you know, overlording us and things like that. He's going to take those guys, kick them off our land, restore us to it, restore power, glory. And they're starting to think, man, this Jesus guy is it. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's coming into Jerusalem. He's going to sit on the throne. And we're right here. Front row seats. Can't wait. Take him down, Jesus. Woo! There's this zeal and this sort of nationalistic fervor surrounding Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the offspring of David. And yet here's the thing. Jesus is preparing to enter the city, Jerusalem, not on a war horse, not on a war horse, which would have been the proper ride of a, of a king, but instead on a beast of burden, on a donkey. He's, he's shadowing here, he's foreshadowing here, What's going on? He's not come dressed in, in armament and with weaponry to go to war, to battle, you know, the Romans or whatever. Instead, he's come in humility on a donkey to make peace. To make peace. And we know, of course, how he will make this peace Paul tells us, Colossians 1.20, he will make peace by the blood of his cross. So the fact that he comes into Jerusalem on a cult, 
It's not only kind of the whole details there signaling his sovereignty in the way that they find the cult. It's also shadowing a bit of Calvary. That he's not come to conquer the Romans and whatever, bring them prosperity here and now. He's come to reconcile them to God. He's come to, to lay his life down to make a way by his blood for you and I to have peace with the one we've been at enmity at in our sin. Now, shadow number two. Shadow number two is just the second and final one I'll give you here. Because um, we, need, we need to see a little bit more. It's, it's, it's not just any cult that is to be used for this task, if you noticed. Look at how Jesus describes the cult in verse 30. On entering, you will find a cult tied on which no one has yet sat. On which no one has ever yet sat, I should say. Now, all the commentators point out that such a note is meant to mark this animal out as suitable for sacred purposes. The idea is that there is something pure, something unsullied, something unblemished about this animal. And, and, and these descriptions here recall for us uh, certain things that we find in the Old Testament. Let me give you just a couple. Numbers 19 uh, one of the first books in the Bible, Numbers 19, people, uh, the people of Israel are told to bring a young cow to the priests. And this young cow needs to be without defect, and one in which there is no blemish, and on which a yoke has never come. You've got to find that young cow that no work's ever been done, unblemished and unsullied, and what do we do with it? Well, it shall be taken outside the camp and slaughtered, verse 3. It is a sin offering, verse 9. Deuteronomy 21. The elders of Israel are told similarly to take a young cow that has never been worked and has not pulled in a yoke, verse 3. And what again are they to do with it? The elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with running water, he says, which is neither plowed nor sown, and shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Verse 4. And they shall say, this is verse 8 now, accept atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed. Atone for sin. Sin offering. There's something going on here that they find this cult just the way Jesus described it is not only a signal of His sovereignty, it is a shadow of Calvary. He's wanting them to see the cross now just days away. He's wanting them to catch a little bit about what's going on. That there on the cross, Jesus, unsullied, pure, righteous, perfect as He is, will nevertheless find Himself a sin offering for you and me. Broken neck, whatever you want to say. Slaughtered right there in God's presence. Not because He deserved it, but because we did. We do. And thereby He makes that offering for sin. Thereby He makes atonement for us. Thereby He allows us to come into peace with God. Now, let me move towards the third heading, Stones of Memory here. This is the point which I've kind of been moving towards. And uh, like I said, we'll linger on this one before we close. We take, hopefully, uh, in the scene of our text, and, 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 and hopefully we have it with fresh eyes and, and perspective now, a little bit different, uh, seeing a little bit more that's there than we did before, and I think now we're ready to ask in earnest. Okay, so clarify for me, why? Why is Jesus doing this with the cult? Why is Jesus kind of signaling his sovereignty in this way? Does he just simply want to show off a bit? Hey, I know the future. Isn't that a cool magic trick? Does he just want them to, to kind of marvel a little bit at who he is and his ability to forecast or, or, or predict? 
Why on the front end of his entrance to Jerusalem, uh, why a few days out from his run-in with the, the cross, is he taking the time to impress upon them his sovereignty over all things, so that even the minutest details about this cult are shown to be under his kingly control? Why is he doing this? What is the point in all of this? I, I can tell you what I think, and I can tell you the piece that ministered to me. I think he's trying to help them. It's typical Jesus, man. Not about him and showing off or something. It's about him having compassion on his disciples who he knows are not going to get what's about to go on. Even though he's spoken plainly, even though he's told them from a thousand different directions, they're not going to get it. And he, he loves them. And he's, let's come at it from another angle. I want you to see I'm in control. I know the cross is going to be a stumbling block for you. I know you have no category in your mind for a crucified Christ. I know you think we're entering Jerusalem and I'm going to take my seat upon the throne. But I am going to be nailed to a cross. The cross comes before the crown. And I want you to see, I got this. These guys are going to struggle. Luke 19.11, we're told, uh, I mean, if you remember, Jesus knows what's going on. The whole parable opened up with with, with this, back up in in the text I referenced. The parable of the minus. Why did he tell it? Luke tells us, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. And because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He told the parable about a king going into a far country to start to get them to grasp what's about to happen. And then he comes into this scene with the cult to try to show them, I am in control. You think the kingdom's coming immediately. It's going to take some time. You're going to feel like it's bad news, like all hope is lost. It's not lost. Matthew twenty six thirty one. Jesus says, I know, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Not going to get it. They're going to run away. They're going to think it's over. You remember, it's this tragic irony. We get this privilege of kind of looking back in on the scene with those two on the road to Emmaus. But it's just so ironic and sad and kind of funny. But I wonder if you recall this with me. Jesus is, a Good Friday has come and, and, and Jesus has died and yet also now it's Sunday and He's risen. You know, they're at dawn and these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, they haven't uh, caught wind of any of the resurrection stuff. They, 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 they think He's dead and it's now day three or whatever. He's gone. Uh, it's over and they're all, you know, sullen and looking down and, you know, uh, uh, burdened by the weight of the world. They had hoped all these things and now it's not coming to pass. And Jesus shows up. Resurrection form says that He was kept from, from or they were kept from recognizing Him. And He has this conversation with them there on the road. He said, listen, why so blue? Why so down? What's going on? And here's what they say in Luke 24, 18 to 21. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. And here it is. But we had hoped... He would be, he was the one to redeem Israel. There's the irony. Did, did you catch it? We had hoped he was going to be the one to redeem Israel, but now he's dead. You and I, on the far side of the cross, look back and say, we are redeemed because he's dead. You, you with me? Because he gave his life, 
He made way for redemption. But on the near side of the cross, if you will, if you'll gather me that before they saw the whole, the fullness of it, these guys had no clue. They couldn't comprehend it. They thought it was over. So again, why is Jesus flexing his sovereignty back in Luke 19 with this cult? And I know that obviously the disciples don't get it, but I think he's trying to give them something to hold on to. When things feel out of control, when stuff gets confusing and seems hopeless, he gives them a little window into what he's capable of so that when they see him there hanging lifeless on the cross, they go, wait a minute. Remember that cult? <laughs> I mean, does that seem like a guy who, 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 who the Jews or the Romans could kind of grab a hold of with, you know, without him being aware? Wait a minute. Maybe, though this seems bad, maybe, though this doesn't feel good, maybe, though I don't understand how all of this is fitting together just yet, God is still in control. Maybe Jesus will still have the last play. We haven't caught it yet. I think that's the sort of thing that's going on when he flexes his he signals to his sovereignty in our text. Say, don't think I'm out of control, but you are going to go through times where you're going to feel like it. It's going to feel not so good. It's going to feel bad. Now, I use the term um, stones of memory here because this is something God, in, in essence, is kind of doing all throughout the, the scriptures with his people. And with Stones of Memory, I'm just referring to that story, a kind of a paradigmatic story uh, from the, the Old Testament where the, the people of Israel are finally entering the promised land. And you remember how uh, God does it? Just like he parts the waters of the Red Sea for them to come out of Egypt, so he, he stops the flow of water in the Jordan River so they can walk through on, on dry land into the promised land. And he says, hold on, hold up. Don't just rush on into the promised land. Here's what I need you to do before you, before you go. S- slow, slow your roll in, in the base of that river. Grab a stone. Grab a stone. And when you come out on the other side, here's what I want you to do. Stack those stones up as a memorial. Because here's what's going to happen. You're going to step into the promised land. You're going to be excited for a day, just like you were in Exodus 15 when you sang, you know, by, uh, on the other side of the Red Sea. And then the next day you turned on me because it got hard. And you forgot all that I was doing, all that I showed you, how good, how strong I am. You, all of a sudden, when you're facing some of these, you know, uh, Gentile nations there in the land of Canaan, and you're, you're called to do something, you're gonna go, God's not with us anymore. God's abandoned us. We're on our own. And when that happens, you gather your family together, you gather your tribe together, and you walk back to those stones, and you go, you remember when? If God could do that, if God did that, He's not abandoned us now. Hold your ground. Keep the faith. In due time, we will see our God come through. He will be right. He will be good. Even if we don't feel it. Right now. Another way they might put it is like this. That's why I named the sermon that I did. I don't know why this phrase kept coming to my mind. I think Jesus in Luke 19 with this cult is trying to show his disciples and us here that he's the only adult in the room. I wonder if you know what I mean by that. There are times, a lot of times, where you and I forget our place in all of this. We just kind of act like we know better. We act like our interpretation, the way that we think things should go, what we feel is good or bad, that God ought to bend to our sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient will and opinion. When it is precisely the opposite. It is precisely the opposite. But you remember 
This sort of thing. I mean, one of the classic examples is Jesus saying, okay, I am going to suffer. I'm going to die. Listen, guys, it's going to be hard, but I'm going to rise. And Peter, hearing the suffer die part, rebukes Jesus. Far be it from you. That's never going to happen. Not my, not my Christ, not my Messiah. Nuh-uh. Don't talk like that. You need, you need good self-talk. Don't get all, you know. Sorry, that's kind of like our culture these days. I love myself. I'm good. No, don't talk like that. You're not going to die. And Jesus turns on him and says, get behind me, Satan. Your mind, you're not, your mind is not set on the things of God, but on the things of man. You're trying to conform God to your little mind. And what you think feels good. You don't see the big picture. You don't see the big story. There's only one adult in the room, Peter. And it's not you. So he signals his sovereignty just a little bit to get us to see this. To get his disciples to see this. To remind us of our place. We don't want to be toddlers trying to tell our daddy how to run the house. You've experienced that. You know it's foolish. And yet we do it with God all the time. And I suppose this is what brings us back full circle to what I opened with. Because there are going to be times when we will butt up against things in Scripture, stuff in the circumstances of our life, where we go, gosh, God, you are not good. This this doesn't feel right to me. Feeling is big these days. Intuition. What I, you know, what's my truth? It's, we, we kind of run with that. This, this feels good, so I'll pick that. Instead of going, hey, you're the only adult in the room. Who am I? But we are going to butt up against some of those texts, whether it has to do with, you know, uh, uh, the marriage covenant, you know, like perhaps with Joshua Harris, or the positions of the church on, on homosexuality, and that, that sounds bad, and it sounds like it's, it's hurting, and we don't quite fully see how God is, you know, good in it, or maybe it's the doctrine of hell, and I don't like that idea, and I just kind of want to go Rob Bell with it, and say love wins, or whatever, you know, let's take, and let's go the easy route, the route that feels good. I'm saying, no, we've got to pause on that. We've got to pause on that. We've got to say, I don't want to be that toddler. I want to trust you. you. You've shown me enough. You're the only adult in the room. Levi, right now, my son, he's three. He's got this thing he's doing where... Um, he has this, this, this dramatic, oh, melodramatic phrase that he uses when he doesn't get something he wants. Like, <laughs> it's really funny. So he's, got, he's, got, you know, we'll give him a little bit of time on the iPad or something from time to time. You can, you can judge me if you want. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, it's time to say no or whatever it is. Or he asks, you know, again and again. He says, no, man. Sorry, we're all done. And one of the things he now says is, <laughs> he lets out this wail. Nobody cares. <laughs> it's humorous, right? You just go, oh my, where did you get this, man? I just want to say, I just want to sit him down and say, are you kidding me right now? Let's run this through. Listen, if I didn't care, then I'd put you on that little thing all day so your brain could rot, your body could rot, and I could have a peaceful time. Because frankly, you're tough to deal with. You know, the best hours are when you're quiet over, the, you know, whatever. So it's like, if I didn't care about you, let's just do that. It's actually because I care, bro, that I'm saying, no, let's go play outside. Let's play with your action figures. Let's, you know, whatever. Let's go read a book. It's because I care. He thinks I'm crushing his little soul. I'm trying to love him well. And frankly, that's what we do with God. God gives us living metaphors like this. And we sometimes with that toddler just going, you don't care about me. Because we don't get it right now. Because it doesn't jive with our sense of what love is. Or what a good plan would be. And we're just like those two on the road to Emmaus. We thought he would redeem us, but he's dead. And we're just waiting for the last act. When God's going to come and say, Listen, I redeemed you because I died. So texts like these exist to say, Slow down on that. Slow down on just jettisoning the scriptures or certain positions. It's because they don't feel good to you in the moment. Slow down. There's only one adult in the room. Let him talk. And give him time. You know? You with me? Do I sound angry? 
Gotta work on that. In my early days, I really did not. Whatever. Sheesh. Like pulling up my sleeves, I'm getting ready to fight. Uh, Let me read you this. I'm going to close with Psalm 131. I love it. I love it. And it just so happened, I was already thinking of it, it just so happened I was there in my devotions yesterday, um, slowly kind of reading through the Psalms little bit by bit, and uh, came to Psalm 131 yesterday. It's perfect. Let me close with this, because I think this captures the heart that we're after. It's just three verses in case you're worried. David says this, Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. You ought to spend time meditating on that on your own. But let me at least bring out something because it is beautiful. It is beautiful. The picture here is that we are to be like this weaned child. This weaned child. And you've got to think about it. If you've ever seen a baby that's being weaned and you kind of put yourself in their shoes, you can imagine. Initially, there's confusion. Initially, it's hard. Wait! What happened to, what happened to the milk? What happened to the... You know, things are, are not seeming good. They're confusing. But if you hang on and you let mother do what she's doing, and, and then, then slowly what you come to find is, you, can, you, you come to realize, wow, well, okay, I've had enough milk to know that mommy is good even when I get into times that are hard. I'm not going to try to wrap my mind, like he says, I'm not going to go after all the ins and outs of, of what God is doing. I'm not always going to be able to get my brain around it. And make God bend to me in some way. No, no, no. I've had enough milk to know mom's good, even when it's, it's feeling a little hard. And we can start to find peace, rest, even hope in that place of confusion. Because we know enough. He's shown us, God has, you kind of to, to take that metaphor in our relationship with God, He's shown us enough. I mean, think about the things that God has revealed to you. Think about the things that He's done. Think about now. This, the cross for them was a stumbling block. For us, it is one of the memory stones. If Jesus would do that for you, He's not going to withhold from you. He is for you, even when you don't get it, even when it feels hard. Have you, have you had enough milk to know His love, even when the milk's not there? You can hold on and hope. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for the ways, man, I personally, not just even in the scriptures with the gospel, but even personally, Lord, you have, you have uh, at times encouraged me with answered prayers or, or even words of prophecy from others that have, have shown me you're, you're, you're with me right before it gets really hard. <laughs> Lord, I thank you that you are faithful to care for your people. And you show us little bits and you call us to remember those things when, when things get confusing and they don't feel good. So God, I pray for, for my church family in this place, my brothers and sisters who are struggling with some of the things that you say, some of the things that you're calling them to. God, I pray that they would that they would put their hand over their mouth, that they'd be like this weaned child. They would learn to stop talking back to, to dad and, and they would learn to trust. God, you'd give them that ability to trust. Even though it's still hard and confusing. Keep us, Jesus, we pray. Amen.